Welcome to the Talent Talks podcast from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. I'm Alan Caesar. My guest today is Stacy Sheard, who's joining us from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's currently a helicopter captain for executive jet management and is also serving a term as chair on the Helicopter Association International's board of directors. She was previously a rotary wing pilot for the U.S. Army, a test pilot for Sikorsky, has flown tours, air ambulance, and movie flying with the Screen Actors Guild. She earned a bachelor's in professional aeronautics from Embry-Riddle in 2010 and a master's in aeronautical science in 2014. Stacy, thanks for joining us today. You bet. Glad to be here. All right. First question, are helicopters cooler than airplanes? Yes, absolutely. 100%. There's no question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to get a little terminology right here. Uh, are the terms rotary wing and helicopter completely interchangeable? Is one more specific than the other? Do people get like real particular about that? Uh, no, no one gets really particular about it. Um, you'll find a lot of military uh, pilots or aviators will refer to rotary wing, and that's pretty common. I think that's uh, that's what a lot of uh, you know military branches may label the the helicopter side of their uh, aviation departments or battalions or squad squadrons, what have you. So rotary wing helicopter, pretty much interchangeable, and I, I'm sure you'll see into the future that uh, we'll start turning, changing the words again into something like vertical. Oh, sure. Yeah, because you've got the whole uh, quad rotor, multi rotor things going on, a lot of drones and uh, urban air mobility. Yeah, absolutely. And it used to just be helicopters, but now the world is opening up. So the helicopter industry is changing into almost everything vertical. Now, right on. Um, so you grew up outside of Fresno in rural California. So in addition to watching Airwolf on TV, uh, you'd see uh, helicopters flying out of uh, Fresno Air Terminal, Terminal into the mountains. And at some point, I'd assume in your teenage years, you went to that airport to try to get a job there. Can you tell me how that went? I did. Uh, so actually, it wasn't um, at that time, there was a helicopter that operated not out of they operate out of the uh, Fresno Air Terminal now, but they operated out of a heliport that was nearby. So I rode my bicycle. Uh, we lived pretty far out into the country, several miles, and I rode my bicycle into town and rode to that heliport and asked him for a job. I was pretty young. I, I'm sure I was probably 12 or 13. So um, they declined. I offered kindly to sweep hangers, wash helicopters, anything they needed just to be around helicopters and denied. So yeah, that was an interesting story because the company that, um, that I uh, you know, tried to get a job from when I was young was a company I interviewed with years later uh, into my career and actually received an offer from them and I declined it just based <laughs> on a few, <laughs> a few other items that, um, that I didn't think were going to work for me at the time. So it was an interesting um, turn of events. No, so you didn't decline just out of spite. You didn't just go there oh, to no. prove it. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. No, it would have been great to move back home and, and work for the employer that sort of had my eyes turned to the sky uh, throughout my entire youth. But it just, uh, at that time in my career, it wasn't exactly what I needed and the direction I needed to go in. So that sure. just purely, yeah, purely for my career choices, I had to decline. No, nothing like that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, going into the Army, which I understand you enlisted in 1990, um, I, that was sort of your plan to get yourself into helicopters? 
I grew up, I graduated high school in about 88. So at the time, there weren't a lot of helicopter flight schools around. And uh, if I did find out about one, it was expensive to the point there was no way I was going to be able to pay for it. There wasn't enough financial aid in the world to help pay for that. So um, thinking about it, and uh, I, my mother actually gave me a book um, that was 101st Airborne. It had a bunch of Blackhawks, you know, uh, Blackhawk on the cover and just full of different helicopters inside. And the Blackhawk is what caught my eye. And the Army flew those. And I figured out that, uh, that uh, different um, branches of the military may bring you on and train you how to fly helicopters if you're willing to give a few years of your life in return. And so it sounded like a great deal to me. And that's what I did. I went ahead and applied and, and I enlisted first, actually, because I thought if I built my resume in the uh, army was my choice, uh, my first choice, because they seem to have the most helicopters. So I based wow. all my decisions on how many helicopters you had and, you know, what they were. Blackhawks were the number one thing I was looking for. And so I, uh, I enlisted first. I ended up learning a language, becoming a, a Russian linguist. And then eventually, four years later, I got picked up into flight school. And I, got, uh, I ended up becoming a warrant officer in, and joined the flight program for the U.S. Army and never looked back. It was a, it was a great choice, actually. I, had, uh, I wouldn't change a thing. It was a great education, and uh, it was worth it. So I'm, I was curious about uh, becoming a Russian linguist. So you didn't know Russian when you went into the program. You learned it completely fresh. Yes, I actually studied. Uh, I was going to Fresno State University at the time when I enlisted into the army, and I was studying Russian. And uh, so, uh, a linguist analyst job sounded like a great way to become enlisted. And obviously, no one told me that I could enlist and become a crew chief or something, a technician that would be close to helicopters. Had I known about that, I would have probably chosen that. But no, I, I enlisted as a linguist. Uh, that it's another love of mine languages. I really liked the the idea of learning a language and uh, and joining the military and hopefully, you know, having getting more of an education. And so that when I got out of the military, I would have places to go with the with everything I learned. So, were you actually speaking it? Were you working in written form? Like, is that did that skill stick with you? Uh, so it's, um, it's a skill that if you don't use it, you lose it. So I did, I studied and, um, yes, you have, uh, you have to speak and read and write in the language that you study. And there are several languages you can learn. You can join the military and I think all branches will send you to linguist school. Um, if, if that's, uh, your job of choice and you do have to pass a series of tests before you leave. So yes, I did speak, read and write. Of course, I haven't used it every day for several years. And anybody that speaks another language knows that if you don't use it, it starts to deteriorate. And, uh, and you know, when you go back to start speaking that language again, it does take some time to come back to you. So, yeah, I would have to immerse myself again in order to get it all back. Yeah, I, I know that feeling completely. I was born in Brazil and I learned I grew up speaking Portuguese and then I moved to the U.S. and I was about 10 years old. And, uh, you know, my parents were very much about, you know, we're going to speak English at home and so that you learn English really well. And at some point, you know, I just kind of lost it and I've tried to get it back, but it's, it's tough. It's tough, especially as an adult now to kind of get back into yeah. it, trying to teach yeah. my kids. It's, uh, it's hard. Yeah. Uh, probably a good, uh, you need to go to Brazil. <laughs> so that would be, I good. really do. Yeah. That would bring it back for you. 
women had been flying uh, helicopters with the army since about the mid seventies, but it wasn't until, you know, 1993 was famously when uh, Jeannie Flynn became the first uh, fighter pilot in the air force. Um, and were you worried at all at that point about, you know, coming into the army uh, about the male female ratio going in, how you might be treated, whether you'd be able to get into a flight training program, anything of that sort. I don't think in the beginning I was very worried about it and paid much attention to it. I think it's other people that uh, brought it to my attention. <laughs> I, I grew up in a, a family of five and I have all brothers. So my world was always full of boys everywhere. So when I joined the army, it was uh, to me, it was just like the same as having a lot of brothers. Um, now I'm sure uh, everybody didn't feel that way, <laughs> but but I didn't think about it a lot. Um, I think throughout it, you are made aware that there are differences, whether it's subtle or, or, or not. I, I was always aware of it. Um, I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Uh, and um, and the, the military makes its efforts. I think the military probably has better percentages of, uh, of minorities uh, involved in different careers than probably the, the civilian or commercial world on the outside. So I would say, uh, I think a recent number I've heard, I don't know that it's official, but some military branches were reporting up to 10% uh, of females that were flying aircraft. So if that's the case, that beats the civilian world out because the highest point on the civilian side of uh, females is about 5%. So when you uh, got, got the assignment to go fly uh, Blackhawks, was that sort of a dream come true for you? How did that feel? Yeah, that was great. So I went into flight school. I, I was enlisted and I, I went over, became, a, you know, went through training, became a warrant officer and went through flight school. And I trained completely on the Huey. So the UH-1 Huey. And uh, those as, have since uh, been decommissioned and they fly new aircraft now. But uh, I went straight from a Huey into a Blackhawk. And yeah, it was a dream come true. And then my first duty station was Fort Campbell, the 101st Airborne. And it was, um, that was the book my mother gave me when I was younger uh, that had the cover that 101st Airborne, it had a big Blackhawk on the front. So, so yes, it came for full circle for me um, that I got Blackhawks, got the aircraft I dreamed about, and it was actually Fort Campbell. It was the home of the 101st Airborne. I, I, all of those things came true. So I, it was hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, how does the uh, how does the Blackhawk compare to uh, the Airwolf in terms of capability? <laughs> the Airwolf isn't real, so um, <laughs> I didn't know that probably growing up. But uh, but yeah, everybody I think that watched TV in the eighties, you know, the Airwolf was pretty cool. No matter if you liked it, didn't matter if you liked helicopters or not. But um, it doesn't uh, see Blackhawk does not have silent mode. Um, and I'm it sure. doesn't, uh, doesn't appear from a cave and it doesn't go, I think at warp speeds at Airwolf went, but it's, it's a pretty capable and powerful, powerful aircraft. So sure. it's not bad. All right. Uh, so you left the army in 2001. So right around, it was November, right? It was right, right. Basically right on top of nine 11. Yes. Yeah. So I felt the, uh, you know, as a lot of people, uh, kind of liken our current situation, the downturn in the aviation industry due to COVID, uh, a lot of industries actually. 9-11 um, was similar, not the same, but 9-11 was a similar effect on 
uh, you know, the aviation industry, and we made it through that as well. So this is familiar in a way. Yeah. Um, so you managed to transition from a military to a civilian career uh, within a, a few months. Uh, what, what was it sort of set you up to get that position? Um, well, I think uh, one of the big things, it was an early lesson I learned, and I had no idea I was even learning it, was making contact uh, with employers on, outside of the military. It's something that you're not really taught in the military how to, how to transition. And it certainly wasn't taught back in 2001 when I did it, but I did slowly figure it out. And um, that was just driving to, um, I drove to the town, Las Vegas, happened to be the closest town to me. I drove to Las Vegas and there were probably four or five helicopter uh, operators there. And I went door to door to all of them, made contact, tried to meet them. Um, if they would accept my resume, I would give it to them. Uh, but other than that, I may hang around for a while and just talk to, if I couldn't t t speak to the chief pilot or anybody in management, then I would just speak to the folks that were working the front desks or maybe the gift shop or wherever they may be just to find out more about what the company does. And um, after a while, um, people got used to seeing me every couple of weeks. I'd pop in again just to say hello. And, uh, and let them know I was still available if they were uh, starting to look for people. But after 9-11, everything was slow. So most of the employers weren't hiring. I was just coming around to make sure that they remembered that I was, you know, was going to be available as soon as they were ready. Yeah. So I've heard that uh, that transition from military to civilian career can be difficult. What is it that makes that hard? Is it that you don't have connections in the private sector? Is it that it's a different culture. What yeah, I think it's both of those. I think, uh, you know, when you're in the military, uh, you know everything about your job. You know everything about the military lifestyle. Um, to a certain degree, you live in a different world, almost, you know, not quite a different planet, but it can seem, it can feel that way. When you leave the military, you're leaving, uh, you were covered, you, were, you knew what you wore every day. You um, knew your chain of command. You knew your job to a T. Um, you, had, uh, you were covered by health insurance of every sort, dental. You were completely taken care of. And leaving the military, it's leaving a lot of the things you know and the life as you know it to go into a world that looks a lot like chaos because a military lifestyle is very structured. Um, and, um, you get used to that and you get comfortable in that. It's a bit of a security blanket. And then when you leave it, it's a very strange feeling to leave something that you knew everything about and come into another, come into another world that works in strange ways. You don't know the rules. You don't know exactly what, uh, what the work different companies do may entail. So, um, yeah, it's a different world. It really is. I found out that it's good to have people on the outside. You can, you can contact, you can call them and ask them, Hey, uh, this is the, you know, can you tell me more about this job or what does this mean? Uh, you know, for instance, when I left the military, if I wanted to go away on a weekend, you know, if, if I wanted to drive three hours over to Los Angeles, I would need permission uh, to leave the area. So in a civilian world, you don't ask anyone for permission. And it's funny because later in my career, I could identify those things in other people. Um, someone we'd hired, I worked for a company, we had just hired someone. And uh, 
all of their terminology is different. I'm going to take leave. I said, no, you're going to take vacation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, just the terminology is even different. So you do, it's helpful to have a guide and, uh, and show you all the little subtle differences. And, um, you know, you want to go into an interview speaking the language of the people that are going to hire you. So it's helpful to get that mentorship um, before you leave the military and before you enter the uh, civilian world so you know what to expect, at least a little bit anyway. Yeah. Well, so you helped develop the Military to Civilian Transition Workshop at HAI. Uh, can you tell me about that program? Yes, I, I did. Um, I, I used to be involved in a um, pilot mentoring program uh, at HAI, Helicopter Association. Every year they have a big event. It's called the Heli Expo. It's our biggest uh, convention of the year. It's fabulous. There's hundreds of helicopters on the floor. It's like eye candy for aviation people. And uh, you can buy, you know, you can go and you can shop for new helmets or headsets. You can look through night vision goggles. It's an amazing show. And you run into people that, that are all in the helicopter industry and that are all, you know, that all share the same passions as you. So I used to um, take part in a pilot mentoring panel. And then eventually I became uh, asked by the previous chair to become the chair of it. And while there, I met someone that was about to leave the military. And he said, hey, um, when we all get back home, can I ask you to, you know, come? I, he was in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Can I ask you to come and maybe give a class to all the guys I work with? They would love to kind of get some insight on what's waiting for them on the outside. So I did that. I went to Fort Belvoir and I gave them what we called a professional development course. And it was just information on the civilian helicopter industry and what to expect. And uh, after giving that course, there were some people from HAI that were there also giving some classes. And they asked me if I'd be interested in coming on board at HA HAI and creating a Miltisive transition workshop for them. And that's what we did. And actually, the, the gentleman that uh, was uh, Mark Stanley that asked me to be there that was leaving the military, he ended up coming on and uh, co-chairing the Miltisive transition workshop with me. So it began there several years ago. All right. Uh, what kinds of uh, advantages does a helicopter pilot get from joining HAI? I think a lot of reasons people go to conventions and conferences, whether they know it or not, is the networking. Uh, and I think that's the number one thing I hear over and over again from people that attend different conferences. And the Heli Expo is the biggest I think the biggest uh, sense of satisfaction I, I got was the friendships that uh, the, a lot of people there I see every year and I only get to see them once a year and it's at the Heli Expo. And they're just people from the industry from all over. So networking it seems to be the top for most people. But also at the Heli Expo, there is a huge number of educational courses that are offered for maintenance technicians, for management, safety, pilots. Uh, you can get a ground, you can get ground school about mountain flying. Um, you can, you can get almost any course imaginable at the Heli Expo and it's all helicopter uh, or vertically re, uh, related. So I, I think education is another of the big ones. And it's uh, a lot of working groups are there for the helicopter industry. It's a unique uh, sector of the industry. So, um, and we have so many sectors. The helicopter industry is a little different and there's probably, there's 20 plus sectors of the helicopter industry. It might include firefighting or utility, heavy lift, air ambulance, corporate, 
charter, tours. Uh, there's just so many different areas of the helicopter industry. You can find something there that caters to one of those sectors. I think most people, even leaving the military, don't realize how many different sectors of the helicopter industries of the helicopter industry that are there. They find out once they get there, though. So I'm a giant dummy, and I don't really understand what networking is. So when I hear that you, you know, I, I read that you networked with people from Sikorsky while you were flying for the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, and I'm not sure I understand like what that means or the sort of the nuts and bolts of what you do when you network with people. I think the first time I attended a Heli Expo, it was in Las Vegas, the annual Heli Expo, and uh, I went and I. Of course, Sikorsky makes the Blackhawk. So, mm. so I'm pulled to that booth and pulled to all the aircraft sitting in the Sikorsky booth because I am familiar with the Blackhawk and I know they make it. So they have a lot of other aircraft there, such as a Sikorsky 76, which is a, a, a civil uh, side of Sikorsky, an aircraft that they make. So um, I, I'm walking around admiring a Sikorsky 76, and I run into somebody that with a name tag on that says Sikorsky, and they ask, hey, how can I help you? What are you looking at? So I just start a conversation with them. Um, I mean, it's easy at one of these expos. If you're an aviation, if you're a person crazy about aviation, it's easy to talk to other aviation people. So we just start chit-chatting, and he says, oh, well, I, you know, I'm the salesperson but it sounds like you're the pilot. We do have a pilot over here. You want to talk to them about, you know, ask them questions about this aircraft or other aircraft. Yeah, that'd be great. So I just started speaking with pilots that worked at Sikorsky. And, um, and as it turns out, I kept in touch with them maybe once or twice a year. And when a job opening did come open, it just so happens that I ran into one of them at a show. And then I followed up later with an email and he said, well, we do have an opening you should probably apply. So it was sort of a, a little push. And the fact that they already had met me and knew my name was helpful. So if they could, if you can put, um, if you can receive a resume, that's one thing. I'm sure they got thousands of resumes. But later, now that I look back at it, how many resumes did they receive where they've already actually met the person and have a good idea of what that person's like? And, uh, you know, at the time, perhaps I didn't realize how meaningful that would be. But now when I, when I mentor other people, it's something I definitely remind them of. Meet someone, shake their hand, look into their eye, let them get to know you. Because when you finally do send a resume to them, it may not be right now, it may be a year or two or three years from now, they can put a name to a face. Yeah. I, so um, you've you've changed uh, jobs uh, in the military and in your civilian career, and you transitioned from military to civilian, which job change was sort of the biggest adjustment for you? You know, when I look back at it, I was an army pilot. Um, we flew a lot of flights and missions we conducted are very close to the ground. We did instrument flying, but there wasn't a lot of it. I was definitely instrument qualified, uh, but I was much more comfortable flying VFR. So when I did go into the civilian industry, the transition itself to learn what even Part 91 and Part 135 even meant, it's not a part on a helicopter, it's actually FARs, things I didn't know when I was in the military. Uh, so learning that was a transition, but I think the biggest one was uh, when I transitioned into a job where I flew a uh, Bell 430, which is sort of the you know, a couple generations after Airwolf, if you remember what Airwolf looks like, just picture the same thing, 
beautiful winglet. It's a beautiful aircraft. I transferred into that aircraft and I was a single pilot IFR captain in that aircraft. So, you know, flying IFR alone, uh, getting comfortable in that aircraft and then getting comfortable enough to fly at IFR alone is quite a task. And I think it's a challenge for anyone. And I think if you had told me that when I was still in the military, that I'd be flying, you know, an advanced aircraft, uh, because in the military, we flew dual, uh, the aircraft I flew, we always flew with two pilots. So you get comfortable mm -hmm. relying on your captain or your co-pilot. I don't think I would have ever thought I could fly it by myself once I left the military and became a captain. And then now I'm flying IFR alone. It wasn't something I ever thought that I, I, I would be able to do. And so it was, that was, a, I think, one of the more challenging transitions I made was to become trained and comfortable enough to do that. What was it that motivated you to get your bachelor's and then your master's degree from Embry-Riddle in, in you know, 2010, well into your career? You know, a lot, a lot of opportunities um, in the helicopter industry are often attached to, very much like the airline industry, very much attached to ad advancement is attached to degree accomplishment. So I didn't want to be limited in my career by not getting a degree. And once I got my bachelor's degree, I mean, I was full throttle. I finished my bachelor's and I thought, well, I, I know how to do this. Let's just keep the momentum going. I'm going to go ahead and enroll. Uh, see if they let me into this uh, degree program, and I'm going to go for my master's. So I, I think that um, I was pretty happy with finally getting to my bachelor's degree, and I just wanted to carry it on and get my master's. But yes, I, I did want to make sure I, I got all of my education, and I could appreciate after I did receive my bachelor's, I could see in myself how it improved me at the in my workplace. Just getting my bachelor's degree improved my skills, just my writing skills um, and uh, data, data gathering, and I could see it. So I thought the master's would make me even more valuable and I'd learn even more. So why not? There you go. Um, so you've been on the uh, board of directors at HAI and you're now the uh, chair of the board. What does it mean to be on the board and to be board chair? Well, uh, the Helicopter Association is um, a representation of, of the helicopter industry and uh, board members, the board of directors is elected by the membership. So all of the, uh, all of the directors that are elected are volunteering. It's a volunteer position. And every, every one of them has recognized that uh, if they want to see changes, if they want to see the industry go in the right directions, that they have to take part in that. So uh, all of the directors are there very much uh, to volunteer and lead the industry in the right direction. Um, and as the chair, uh, that just makes me uh, sit at the table and, and get to be in awe of the rest of the board of directors who are there doing the very job that, that I wanted to, to do. So I, I think the directors make it an easy job um, because they are very motivated to be there. Um, they're volunteers, so I think it says a lot about them. And, uh, and yeah, we, um, we make decisions to guide the uh, helicopter association and the industry. We have a relationship with the, um, with the FAA and we're building relationships internationally every day. The goal is eventually to lead the goal, uh, to lead the globe in vertical, the vertical uh, aviation industry. So we're in full transition to do just that. There you go. Um, 
What advice would you give? Now we're recording this in 2020. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody trying to get through this year? Ah, well, this isn't uh, <laughs> this is the <laughs> aviation industry. I think that that the in the aviation, if you're in it, you're in it because you have a passion for it. If you don't have a passion for it and there's something you're more passionate about, I think you'll you'll find your way to that passion because the aviation industry is not easy for most people. There's gonna there are going to be challenges in just my career. Uh, you know the the last major challenge was 9/11, and you hear a lot of people uh, speak about it. COVID is probably going to be a little longer, and adapting to the new world is going to take some time. But it's also going to take a lot of innovation and a lot of outside the box thinkers. Well, I recently wrote you know, an article. And I think the, the guidelines before COVID hit uh, as to how to find a job, how to keep a career going are the same. And I think if, you, if you've already been networking, if you've already been talking to industry friends, that even if you lose your, your job, you'll probably find that there are other positions out there. I definitely have thought several times during COVID, Okay, what what do I do if I if I lose my job? If I find myself, you know, out of a job today, where do I go? And I think that's uh, the big increase. You see a lot of a lot of people going on social media and connecting with other people because no one's sure of what tomorrow will bring. And we all have to look outside, bring your head up out of the sand, look outside and see what's out there. To your question prior, the networking is a huge part of that. And, uh, and you network with your friends and you speak with people in the industry to find out what else is going on in other jobs around you. You find out what's happening out there. And uh, if something happens to you, you let your network know. And if someone knows about some, uh, an opportunity, they tell you. So I think those connections still follow through. That's great. Uh, all right, Stacey, we'll uh, continue to the lightning round right after this short break. If you live in Florida and drive a car, consider getting an Embry-Riddle license plate when you renew your registration this coming year. When you add an Embry-Riddle plate to your vehicle, a portion of your annual fee goes toward our Alumni Endowed Scholarship, which provides financial support to Embry-Riddle students across all our campuses. Whether you're alumni, faculty, staff, or just a fan of Embry-Riddle, placing an Embry-Riddle plate on the back of your ride is a great way to show your love for our university. Visit your local TAG office to request yours. If you already have one, please let us know. The state of Florida does not share any information with us about the individuals who get Embry-Riddle tags, so we can't properly thank you for your support. Visit alumni.eru.edu tag and fill out the form, and we'll mail you a special thank you gift. All right, now it's time for our lightning round. I'm going to give you five questions, and you're going to give me five answers. Are you ready? Okay, let's go. All right. Uh, you can pilot any aircraft ever made from anywhere to any destination. What do you choose? You know, I, I'm always interested in, in a new aircraft. So, I mean, I, I, I've flown some wonderful aircraft, maybe something new. I've never tried out the something like an Osprey, something a little blend mm -hmm. of vertical and horizontal. So I think, uh, I think probably something new, an Osprey, and uh, destination is... Um, in my world, I don't need to go far. Um, I think, um, I think uh, you know, a nice Caribbean island somewhere and take a little vacation and then get there back in and come back. So, yeah, something nice. Excellent. Uh, 
All right. So if you could read only one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, um, well, I'd change that to an author. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'd go with, uh, I really like Orson Scott Card. Um, he wrote, if you remember Ender's Game, and he's got a whole series of very science fiction space, future of the earth and, and uh, evolution. And I, I think it's an interesting, um, interesting mind. And so I, I, I really like Orson Scott Card. I would read probably anything he wrote. All right. Uh, if uh, uh, who's your favorite cartoon character? The more recent cartoonish characters are probably uh, more up my alley. I don't remember any from when I was young and growing up that I admired. You know, I, it's hard to admire Smurfette. So um, <laughs> let's go with uh, um, Merida uh, from Brave. She's oh, yeah. A, yeah, she's an archer. Mm -hmm. So I, I dig that. Yeah. And she's got the flaming red wavy, you know, hair. It's all over the place. It's always a hot mess. Love that. So. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of like, I think the the modern, uh, I hesitate to use the term princesses, but the modern female heroes are it, it, uh, in Disney and Pixar are really great. Yeah, they're they're way more cool. There's less. We're not as inside the box anymore. I think we can go a little out of the box, and they're way cooler today. Yeah, for sure. She had a great like personal journey through that. It wasn't like a romantic interest. It was uh, finding herself and building her relationship with her mom. That was really cool. Yeah, that was. Sorry, I have a six year old daughter, so I get excited about these things. Oh no, it is. It's pretty cool, right? And then yeah, next thing you know, you're going to take your, you're going to buy a bow, bow and arrow set, you know, archery set for your daughter. So that's not a bad hobby. Yeah, that's right. Well, I don't, I wonder what she might do to her brother, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So picture for me, your ideal grilled cheese sandwich. Uh, you're, you've got this in your hands. You're about to take a bite out of it. What are you about to sink your teeth into? Mm, well, okay. You got to have a bowl of tomato soup. On the okay. Side. Yeah. Um, but you grilled cheese, it's got to be, I'm a Californian, it has to be sourdough and it has to be toasted, slathered in butter and toasted or in the, in the skillet, yum. And the cheese, um, make it at least three cheeses, put some cheddar and some, uh, ooh, cream cheese and Gouda and, uh, throw a tomato on there, maybe sliced tomato. That sounds good. And I don't mind sprouts either. So, and dip it in the tomato soup. There you go. Make a meal. Yeah. All right. That's fantastic. All right. If you could live for a week as any person in history, who would it be? Oh, probably any astronaut to see something I haven't seen before. Um, well, I'll go with Eileen Collins. She's pretty cool. That's a good astronaut. Just to see right. some space, because I figure that maybe in my lifetime I won't. So if I could be somebody else that already has, that'd probably be good. There you go. All right. Well, thanks very much, Stacey, for joining us for the Talent Talks podcast. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Talent Talks is a production of Wicked Radio and the Embry-Riddle Office of Philanthropy and Alumni Engagement. We're coming at you from my office at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida, and reaching Stacey in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was recorded by me and edited by Cindy Puckett. Edmund Odarte is our program manager. Bill Thompson is Executive Director of Alumni Engagement, and Tony Brown is Executive Director of Communications. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our show or suggest a guest to us, we'd love to hear from you. Visit alumni.erau.edu slash podcast and click the feedback link. Thanks for downloading us. We'll see you next time.